If I began to experience accidental weight loss, fatigue, extended high fever, unexplained rashes, yellow patches of skin, and unending severe headaches that went on for weeks, it would be very apparent that I have a significant health problem. Knowing I have a problem, what if my course of action was to eat more, to put on weight, or even wear one of those weighted vests I see guys running with, or maybe some ankle weights to bring up the weight, uh, sport one of those chill collars filled with ice-cold water around my neck, uh, maybe drink a couple of Red Bulls or five-hour energy drink on the hour to keep me more energized, take some high-power meds, pain meds to reduce the headaches, and then on my skin apply some skin tone makeup to cover over the yellow patches and rash. Would that be a good strategy? It wouldn't, would it? Why? Wouldn't solve my problem, would it? It wouldn't get to the heart of the matter. In verses 1 through 14, if you remember from last week, and you can look in your scriptures there, who was Jesus' main audience when he spoke? Verses 1 through 14. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think I need to keep making you work more as we're doing this, <laughs> to stay with me. But this is good, because we, we're coming to study the Scriptures together. And uh, as much as trying to explain what's in them, I want to try to encourage you to dig and, and develop those skills. So who was he talking in verses 1 through 14 to? It'll tell you right at the beginning. Pharisees and the scribes. That's exactly right. And where were they from? Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't tell you there, but does anyone remember about how far away distance it is from Capernaum where they have gone to meet with Jesus down south to Jerusalem? It's about 90 miles. It's a good long trek. And they've gone all the way up there to Capernaum. Now, by this time in Jesus' ministry, these Pharisees and scribes have arrived to confront Him and to watch Him What have they already decided to do? Kill him. That's exactly right. They, in their minds, are looking for opportunities to get rid of Christ, to exterminate him completely. Now, why? Why were they so intent on destroying Jesus? Primarily, last week, what we learned is because he offended them so constantly by going against the traditions of the elders their regulations that they have put in place. Those things that they themselves have created really over the centuries and they demand of those under their power. No one will keep Jesus under their power. Jesus quotes to those men a scripture from the prophet Isaiah which they would have known very well. He said, Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, And honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Their hearts are far from God. And it results in vain worship. Empty worship. Useless worship. Why? Because they're holding fast to these traditions instead of the very word of God. It says that it makes God's word of no effect. Their traditions, their habits, the things they hang their life upon make God's Word powerless. 
For centuries, for centuries, these Pharisees, they've been building a continually increasing code of regulations. And they believe these regulations are absolute to make themselves righteous before God, able to enter into His presence. Because the Jewish leaders had replaced or covered over the Word of God with their own regulations, they and the Jewish people have long ago departed from really knowing and walking with their Lord God. This people that he's speaking to have been lost for generations. Now the crowd and its leader and its leaders stand far from God. They're lost in their maze of empty worship and oppressive rules. However, think of the irony. Unbeknownst to them, as far away as they are from God, they are standing in the very presence of God who has entered into their world as Jesus Christ. As far as they have drifted away in trying to make themselves righteous by keeping all these regulations, they, at that moment in time, are standing amazed in the presence of the song of Jesus and Nazarene, and they don't even realize it. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 23 It may seem to be a distant teaching of Jesus to a first century people, entrenched in confusion and false teaching, unable to see God. Believe me, it is just a deadly pit in the 21st century as it ever was in the first century. Let's pray and ask God to teach us. Heavenly Father, your word says, from the Apostle Paul that he came in weakness and fear and much trembling. And his message and his preaching were not with wise and persuasive words of men's wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of the power so that the faith of men would not rest on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. Lord, we ask you please to teach us. Please open our eyes and our hearts to understand you. Make us ready, students, uh, effective, earnest, diligent students into the Word of God so that we see you, not so that we can acquire just knowledge, but that we see our Savior and our King. Please teach us this morning what you were teaching that multitude 2,000 years ago. May you be praised and worshiped, for you are worthy. Amen. In verse 14, as you'll notice there, Jesus changes his target audience. Verse 14 reads, When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. He moves past his confrontation with the religious authorities, and he reaches out to the thousands upon thousands. Literally, we're talking about, this isn't a large group of a hundred. This is likely several thousand people. Could be 10,000 people. When he was feeding, it looks like there may have been 20,000 there that took place. We don't know, but we know it was a huge number of people. And they are gathered there, and they are anxiously anxiously awaiting to hear hear his next authoritative word, the power of his speech. And they're watching to see what is the next supernatural thing that Jesus is going to do. No one had ever lived on the earth like this. Can you imagine if he was in Goddard? Or something. We don't, the world would be 
collapsing on that place. Jesus was doing things that had never been imagined before. And now he draws the people to him and he's going to speak to them. And he says, listen, understand. He's, he's crying out, pay attention. Comprehend what I'm going to tell you. This is a highly important message. And it is perhaps the most important message these people will ever hear. For they are entrenched. They are stuck. For centuries the Pharisees have taught and the people heard and believed that the Jewish heart was not wicked. The Jewish heart is not wicked in the teaching of what these people have heard. They all thought that they were basically good on the inside, explains one of the writers. Uh, They were righteous on the inside. They went to the synagogue. They observed the traditions of the elders. They followed the ceremonies and the ritual washings that they were told to do. And so they therefore were good and righteous. And the only thing they had to be afraid of was something on the outside because the inside was fine. Jesus sets out to destroy this myth. As he teaches, he is destroying this myth. Not because he just likes to be a radical, but because this myth is a complete distortion of his father's commands. This myth has dragged countless thousands into hell, and at that very moment, it is holding the souls around him in complete bondage. Here Jesus Christ proclaims to them, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. There is nothing coy, there is nothing indirect about Jesus when he speaks. His words, they're like a grenade dropped inside of a synagogue of tradition. It explodes upon the scene at a time when the only thing these people know is that defilement comes from the outside. That's all they've ever heard. That's what they believe. That's the way they live. Now the word defile, it means to be polluted. It means to be unclean before God, before the Holy God. The word defiled is used, if you look here, five times in these few verses that we look at. It is a prominent theme in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament. That word defiled is used over 225 times. It's the word chalal in Hebrew. And it is everywhere in the Old Testament Scriptures. The heart of the matter is, is that Jews have spent all their lives trying to avoid bumping into Gentiles and Samaritans. Avoid touching anything that was dead or anyone that had touched something dead. Avoid touching reptiles or anyone that touched a reptile. Avoid contacting a person with skin disease or someone who had touched such a person. As long as their outside body didn't contact something or someone that was against the rules, they were good. They were pure. They were clean before God. That's all they had to do is really hold fast to these doctrines or these teachings on cleanliness. But Jesus, but Jesus declares to this crowd and in earshot of the leaders of the religious establishment, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. It shocked those religious leaders. We know this by what happens next. If you look in Matthew 15, the parallel passage here, we read, Then the disciples came and said to Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Such brazen, radically different teaching. It may have confused 
the common people crowded around Jesus, but there was one group of people there that morning that knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That was the Pharisees. Once again, Jesus is flying directly in the face of all their long-held tradition of the elders. Now, let me tell you how offensive this is. It's kind of hard to get it because we don't have those kind of regulations. And they haven't been put upon us like chains like they were these people. But let me show you, tell you something here about these traditions and also how long-standing the rejection of Jesus could last. I read of a quote from an 82-year-old Orthodox Jewish Hasidic teacher, Gutman Locks. So with a brief search, I found Rabbi Locks quoted in April 10th of 2010 in Christianity Today. He said such as this, Accepting Jesus as Messiah would mean the destruction of the Jewish people. For Jesus was opposed to Jewish teachings. He did things like picking food from the fields on the Sabbath. Still offended with Jesus after 2,000 years. Still stuck on the oral tradition of, of the elders. And it's now sadly even more firmly established as it has been published in the voluminous Jewish Talmud. Still stubborn and blind to the truth of the Messiah. Still in bondage to lifeless, lifeless traditions. That's how long and how hard and how fast these traditions held people in bondage. Now responding to the disciples' report about the Pharisees' offense, Jesus answered and He said this, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It's from Matthew 15. Don't worry about them. I and you, says Jesus, are not here to appease them. Jesus was not about pleasing man. Jesus was not about following the distorted, compromised traditions. As He said in the Gospel of John, very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Christ gives clear explanation of the source of defilement. Where is this defilement? If it's not from foods coming in, if that doesn't do it, well, where is this coming from? Verse 17, When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And actually, it's Peter as the spokesman for the disciples. He takes the lead in Matthew 15, and he asks Jesus and says, Explain this parable to us. Now, this is a, a very plain, street-level parable. The parable actually seems to be exactly what he says. And at least to us, it's pretty plain. But, but we're on the New Covenant side of these scriptures, so we know where this goes and we can understand it. But this was almost like telling the disciples and the crowd there that the sky is purple. You've heard it's blue. No, the sky is purple. They had been with Jesus for several months now. His teaching had amazed them, as well as supernatural miracles. And time and again, He and they came into conflict with the Pharisees. But these rules on cleanliness and outside defilement, they're like the ABCs of life. That's all these people knew. From birth, they had been taught how to keep themselves clean from being polluted 
defiled by the outside world. Leviticus 11, open that in your scriptures. It's the third book in the Old Testament, right there at the beginning. Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 11. And without me saying anything, just look through that a little bit and look at the names that you see there of animals, of their classifications, of the different kinds you see there. Now tell me, all of you, tell me a name of an animal you see there. A little louder. Swine, right. Pig, good. What else? Rabbit. Rabbit. Somebody's reading it. Good job. <laughs> Lizards. Great. Okay, bearded vulture. Good. Bats. Great. You see all sorts of animals in there, don't you? And they're all classified. And we're shown here what would be defiled if you were to eat of these things? What if those were the things that were part of your diet? And Leviticus 11 makes it clear that these are not things that you should eat. If you look at their classifications, you can start to say even how the foot is made, whether it's a certain kind of hoof or not, or whether it has scales, if it's a, a fish or fins, and those types of things. All these regulations are given So one might then ask, well, if these laws were going to throw the people into legalism, why would God have introduced them to his people in the first place? Why would they be there if they were just going to become a stumbling block? Well, there are at least three purposes to these dietary laws, and I want to give those to you here. It gave the Israelites opportunity, first of all, to show their love for God by obedience. They were able to show by obedience their love for God. If you remember back in the very first days of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, the Garden of Eden. And God gave them that garden. And they were to take care of it. And they could eat from every tree in the garden, right? Is that right? No. How many trees? One tree they could not eat from. So they had free reign of everything there. And in I think much the same way, God placed that tree in that garden, not as a temptation source, but as a way for their love to be tested. And by obedience, they could see that tree and they could love God through obedience. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 21. He said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Obedience is not a heavy bondage thing that we carry around with us, hoping we can do it well enough. It's not when you are in Christ. Obedience is our expression of love to our Savior. And do we fail? We do. But every failure we've made was placed upon his Son, Jesus Christ, and paid for to the uttermost by him on the death of the, on the cross. But obedience is our way of demonstrating love to the Father. I believe that is one of the reasons. The second reason is it separated them. It separated them in lifestyle from the neighboring pagan nations. 
The Israelites would stand out among any ethnic group that they would ever live beside. And they would be set apart as God's people. A third reason. It did provide some health benefits for them. Certain types of unclean animals did in fact carry more parasites. And they were less healthy to eat than others. So those are three particular reasons that they're, they could be there. And, and there are arguments about what are others and, and which ones are the most important. But there are some of the reasons. All three of these purposes, if we were to look in Daniel chapter 1, we would see Daniel, a young man who was taken to Babylon, and he sets himself apart in a very unique way. He is to be given the best of the king's table, all the best of the king's wine. These are, these are some of the top men, young men from Israel that have been brought to Babylon. And the king of Babylon wants to raise them up and make these his finest. Daniel says, we're not going to eat from that stuff. We're not going to drink from those things. It would defile us. It would be in violation of our God. He sets himself apart. He will not do that. He demonstrates his love. He doesn't care whether they cut his head off at that moment or not. He is a captive in a foreign land, in a prison. He has no power. And yet he will not go against the laws of his God. And then if we read further on in chapter 1, when it's all said and done, he and his brothers there, the other men from Israel, they look better than any of the guys who had taken part in all those meals and drank in that finest of wine. So there were health benefits from it too. But now, knowing that background and seeing how they could have been so tightly into that, this new rabbi Jesus... This new rabbi Jesus, with authority and teaching, supernatural miracles, and commanding power over demons, is telling them this dietary regimen is no longer needed. Verse 18. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not see? Do you not perceive that whoever, the, excuse me, that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, expelled. In the King James it says draught. The word there is specifically means the place of sitting apart. It means a latrine. That's how plain and factual this is. It is a very direct and common life analogy. Jesus is saying it plainly. Foods are nothing. They have no impact on the holiness or defilement of anyone. They will not cause spiritual stain or toxicity. You eat food and it does not morally change you. One way or the other. Then you literally expel that food as waste. The waste that comes out of the man is what you stay away from. What food goes in is fine. What comes out, keep your distance. That is the natural process Jesus is bringing here. Thus he declares, says Mark, all foods clean. And in a couple of your translations, it'll show that phrase in parentheses. This is a phrase that Mark gives there to clarify and even amplify what Jesus has just said. This is how stunning it is. Mark even says, this is what he's saying. In case you've misunderstood it or it hasn't gotten to you yet, this is what he's saying. Now, I want to tie some scriptures together here. Because we know this is a library made of 66 books, all of which agree that point us to God. 
Who in Scripture experienced a message directly from God very similar to what Jesus told the crowd? Peter. Exactly. It was Peter. This word from God would be after Jesus was himself was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. After he had ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father in high. It took place in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. This is a monumental event in the time of the church. Uh, several of the young people studied through Acts this last year. And I heard some, some great insights onto this. This particular episode in chapter 10 is about a centurion by the name of Cornelius. And he seemed to have been led by the Spirit of God to be seeking after God. Otherwise, he would never have done it. You didn't find many centurions doing that. God has been leading this man to seek after God. And he speaks to him and directs him to send men to Joppa to find a fellow by the name of Peter. That's a very quick summary, condensed version. But let's go to verse 9 in chapter 10. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. You see how entrenched this was? Even Peter, I have never done anything like that. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. So that's Peter's vision. Now Peter is thinking about it, and there's a knock down on the door downstairs, and these guys arrive, and Peter then meets these fellows, and he begins to think, okay, God has his hand in this. So he goes with Cornelius' his fellows back to Cornelius' house. Now I want to take back up at, um, let's go down to verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth. He is at Cornelius' home then. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which which John preached. How God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, whom God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That's what they needed to hear. And Peter told them boldly, clearly, what this new gospel 
was all about. Now, how does this tie in? Well, Peter, who we just read about in Acts, and John Mark, the author of this gospel we are studying, were very close brothers in Christ. It is believed that John Mark had never actually walked with Christ in person. Peter, on the other hand, was a close disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter's strong influence and experience were much of what John Mark depended on in writing his gospel account of Christ. So we have a connection. It's just beautiful to see the Word of God connect in these ways in these relationships. So Peter's experience with this, and now as I think about that too, Peter, I'm sure then at some point began to think about what he had heard in Capernaum when Jesus had made this statement. And Mark ties it in right now and says, connecting these dots, that this also means that Jesus is declaring that all foods are clean to be eaten. And then Jesus said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. Now Matthew gets more specific and he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a man. And then Jesus says, this is what defilement looks like. In the same way that the Pharisees built and maintained endless lists of rules and potential infractions, Jesus then offers 12 heart offenses in two lists to the crowds around him. The first six items are all in what we call the plural form. This tells us that these are actions. The second six, if you look carefully, are singular. And they portray attitudes of sin. So we look at actions and attitudes. Verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Acts from the heart. Adulteries. Sexual sin that violates the marriage commitment. Fornications. It's the Greek word porneo. It is sexual sins. It's where we get the term pornography. And and just in the last few weeks I was reading, if you combined the gross income, a a gross amount of money that has been paid to the NFL, the Major League Baseball, NBA basketball, all of these in one pot, it doesn't come close to the amount of money that's being made in in the field of pornography. It has just decimated lives, Churches, marriages, it is everywhere. And it is such a struggle. Jesus puts that at the very front. He knows this is a battleground. He knows that what comes out of that is a defilement for men. He understands. He brings this to the, to the forefront of the battle. Then he goes murders. Verse 22, thefts, covetousness. Now, murders, thefts, covetousness, fornication... Those are four specific commands in the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is bringing those to bear too. Then wickedness, the sixth one. That wickedness is kind of general. It means everything that is in violation of the law of God. Then we come to the attitudes. Deceit, lying and craftiness. Lewdness, it's a sensuality, it's a filthy mind. And evil eye, what that means is envy. Blasphemy or slander, it's abusive speech toward another. Pride. It's self-righteousness and arrogance, foolishness, it's nonsense and folly. Now I ask you this, was the heart's wickedness totally foreign to the history of God's people? Had they never thought about this? Had it never been told them that the heart is the seat of evil? No, it was not. They should have known this, but the drifting sinful heart coupled with the continued layer upon layer of these traditions 
brought the Jewish people down a path far from God. That is why the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 17, The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his doing. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. If you want to read a prophetic word from God about our culture in which we live, go to Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Because what may, be, what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women, even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Is this not 21st century news stuff? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. That mind is a broken mind. It cannot even put 2 plus 2 to equal 4. It cannot make common sense. It is a broken mind. God gave them over to a debased mind. God gave this culture in which we live over to a debased mind as well. To do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. They're violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice, practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, look at that list. Have you escaped this list without any scars? Or any convictions? I have not. I look at that list. You haven't either. We all admit that we are sinners. But we blithely say oftentimes, states one of the commentators I was reading, to err is human. And nobody's perfect. 
And while we say such things, we demonstrate that we see sin as something on the edge, something tangential, something peripheral to our existence. Jesus said, no, defilement comes from the very core of your being. This 23-verse teaching, this confrontation, which we are reading here in Mark, with the religious leaders and the crowds, it's actually the longest section of the Gospel of Mark with anything like this. Here Jesus clearly maps out the true purpose of the Levitical laws given by God through Moses. They were to point God's people to an inward purity and motive, a pure heart, not outward obedience to an impossible list of increasing traditions and more regulations. The law is good, says Scripture. The law is good. Why? It tells us the truly unattainable requirements of our holy God. Our sin makes our condition hopeless. The Word of God shows us this. Without obeying and fulfilling all of God's laws, we can never have God as Father nor be in fellowship with Him. It is literally impossible. This law, however, points a hopeless man when he is still without strength to Jesus Christ. This law points the man who is still a sinner to the one who died to save him from slavery to sin. It is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Not with what food you eat or don't eat. Not with how you wash your hands or when you wash your hands or wash your whole body. It is totally meaningless what they have believed. Jesus said what comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within, out of the heart of man. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, that's Old Testament. That's in the Torah, the books of Moses. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The prophet Jeremiah, he knew salvation required a new heart. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The heart is not neutral. Many people believe it is. They believe it's all an impact of the environment. That the heart itself is fairly clean. It's fairly pure. Certainly not enough to condemn a man to hell. The scriptures tell us quite the opposite. Our hearts are wicked. One of our old patriarchs in the past said, The heart is an idle factory. It manufactures them when they're not there. So that we will pursue something other than God. That is our heart. If we were to look in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 13, we would see almost verbatim what Jeremiah said. 
So the New Testament brings it across as well. The New Testament, the New Covenant. It is a heart covenant. We read this morning of a first century tradition. A preoccupation with things that were worthless. Now we live in a time of 21st century presupposition. By that I mean 90% of the people easily that you ask if you would be right before God will say yes. And when asked why, it's because, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't done this and I haven't done that. I think I'll be okay. Now there are a few brave but foolish souls who will say, no, I, I know I'm going to hell because of this, this, and this. But I, I think about this for the first century Jew when he got up in the morning after he had gotten himself ready for the day as he went through life he was trying to avoid this, 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 and this to remain undefiled to try to be right before God. 21st century Christian he gets up in the morning gets himself ready and what does he think about? Does he think well spiritually I better do this, this, and this before I go out and I need to make sure I do this, this, and this. Does he ever stop to say, Lord, have my heart. Have my heart completely, wholly, fully. I am a sinner, and I need you desperately. My only hope is you. And this is a heart issue, Father. I can get up, and I can spend 30 minutes in prayer. I can memorize two verses, and I can study a chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And I can be lost as can be. It's a heart issue. It's not a keeping of sacraments. It's not a keeping of regulations. It's not a keeping of disciplines. Now, I believe disciplines are very helpful for us. They bring us into the presence of the Word of God. But so often we feel like this is where we begin and that is sufficient. Just like the Jews in the first century who believed that they could keep themselves clean from defilement. They could go to the sanctuary and offer their offerings. They do all these things and they'd be fine before God. We do not want to come before God on that judgment as Matthew 7 says and He looks at us and says, Depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. May we come to Christ Daily, hourly, in relationship with Him. It's not a plug it in in the morning so I can make it through the day. It's plug into this in the morning. Know God, seek Him, love Him, let Him change your heart and be in fellowship with Him throughout the rest of the day into the evening. And when you find yourself drifting, please don't think that I, that I think I do this or that I'm setting myself exalted above you all. I fight the same battles. But when I find myself drifting, and being attached to the world, or looking at this, or thinking about that, repent. Come back to God, and put yourself back in fellowship with that wonderful Savior. For your heart needs Him desperately. And He loves to minister to our hearts. First century tradition, 21st century lostness. Man hasn't really changed. He needs Christ more than ever. And He needs a new heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would give us such a word that we could understand the gospel, that we could see your Son, Jesus Christ, preaching and teaching these very truths. Lord, help us. Please teach our hearts by your Holy Spirit. 
I know I can read this, and if your spirit doesn't speak to me, it, it, it means nothing. It just floats through one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that it won't. I pray that for the men and women and young people here, that your word will sink in that ear and go into the heart. And you will change us. And you will draw us near to you. Lord, we have growing challenges facing us in the days ahead that are actually a platform and a stage for the Son of God to be glorified through His people. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, provide us hearts that love you more than life itself. Please grant us wisdom and discernment that we would walk full of the Spirit of Christ. In your name we pray, giving thanks and praise. Amen.